The Good Neighbor Network, FM 101.9 and AM 1450 Murfreesboro, FM 100.5 Smyrna, and online at WGNSRadio.com. This is a WGNS Action Line, talking with Rutherford County newsmakers about what matters most to you. Now your host, Scott Walker. Right now that time, 8.17, you're listening to WGNS, and our guest this morning, Dr. Ben Stickle, Professor of Criminal Justice at MTSU. How are you this morning? Doing very well. Thank you for having me. So, talking a little bit about the prison system and, uh, I guess, education programs within our systems, and I say systems because there's multiple prison systems across the country, Uh, but what are some of the different programs that you looked at, because you recently did a study uh, about prison systems and education in them yeah so we have a real problem and a challenge in this country trying to uh, take a large volume of prisoners and trying to figure out what to do with them so it's very expensive to house them and just locking them away doesn't seem to be very effective and they end up uh, many times being released and returning back to a life of crime and so we were interested in what are the impacts of education specifically to help them get on their feet so that when they get out they're less likely to reoffend and you know don't commit more crimes and cost more money or get sent back to prison and so we looked at uh, prison education programs uh, different forms of them to see if any of them actually had an impact did they really move the needle to help people get out of jail and stay out of jail so were there some programs that stood out more so than others Yeah, so we looked at four different types of education. We looked at adult basic education. That's basically learning to read and write, some of your basic things. We looked at secondary education, which is like a high school or GED equivalent. Vocational, which is some kind of technical schooling. And then we even looked at college and college education in in prison. So we looked at all four of those individually um, and together to try and find out where the impacts were. And then where were some of the prisons that you looked into as far as trying to figure out what programs are best and uh, which ones work? Yeah, so that's actually the second part of our ongoing study. But the first part, we did uh, what's called a meta-analysis. And we did a deep dive. We looked at about 700 different research papers and took the best of the best that we could find that really dealt with this specific subject. And we were able to take about 79 of those papers from around the 80s up until 2023 and pull out all their data, basically combine them together and rerun the analysis to say what is happening across all different types of programs. So to answer your question, these are programs from Texas to Washington to Maine, all over the country. We basically re-ran the analysis to see what the overall effect was. And again, Dr. Ben Stickle with us this morning, and uh, you are a criminal justice professor at the university. So did the uh, students there participate in these studies? Yeah, we had several students that participated with us and my co-author, Dr. Steven Sprick-Schuster in the economics program. He had a couple of students in the econ program that helped us with these and um, did different things, looked for papers, pulled information, ran some of the statistics. Now, one of the things that you did find, which I thought was interesting, those who did participate in some type of education program while in prison actually earned more when they got out. Yeah, so we found what is generally a fairly small increase in monthly income, but an increase nonetheless. And that was actually a very important finding for us because we wanted to know really ultimately what the the cost of this program, these programs are, but we also want to know what the benefit is. And the benefit is not only to the community for perhaps less crime, less cost for to incarcerate individuals who come back, but also the benefit to the individual who participated. So there obviously has to be some benefit to them as well. And so what we found is there's less likelihood of them returning to prison after completing these programs, but also an increase in their dollar amount that they make every month after completing them. And so that certainly goes a long way to help reduce the recidivism rate of them returning 
to a life of crime. And when it comes to a male or female inmate, did you find any differences there when it, you know, after they get that extra education in prison and then get out? Yeah, our research study actually didn't look at that. We didn't really have enough numbers divided that way since we relied on other people's studies to kind of pull this together. We did not we're not able to look at it in that method. So what are some of the main highlights that you thought were the most fascinating about this study? Yeah, so again what we really want to know is what is the return on investment? So to to do that, that would be where you take all of your costs and look at all of your benefits and say what really happens in these situations. And we were very encouraged by this and to be honest kind of surprised. What we found is that there is actually an increase um, and a helpful benefit to actually doing these things. Now, that may sound kind of strange to some people. Uh, imagine spending money on criminals. That sounds like <laughs> something we don't want to do, right? But actually, we found that it actually is. And so providing some of these benefits actually not only, again, helps them be less likely to come back, it also gives them more money out the door. It increases their likelihood of being employed once they are released. And so what we found is it's actually worth it. So, for example, um, uh, Secondary education, for every dollar we spend on that, we get about $2.25 back into the system. So it's actually a cost saving. I think that's the biggest thing we want to share, not only with the public and those who are running jails and prisons, and also government officials and administrators to say, look, actually spending money in these programs is a benefit because it reduces recidivism and helps people get out and live a better life. And so these are areas where we should spend money, we should pay attention to, and we should look at policies to actually encourage these things. So those dollars that come back, do those go into state government or where do they go? Yeah, that's a very good question. So what we did is we looked at both the dollars to come back to the individual. So as you pointed out before, there's an increase in salary, but we also looked at the reduced cost of incarceration. So it was very expensive uh, to have someone in, in uh, prison. So in 2017, it was estimated about $80 billion a year is spent just to house inmates in this country. That's a lot of money. And so a big portion of the calculation was if someone is less likely to come back, we can reduce some of that cost. And so the cost saving actually comes when we have individuals who do not return to prison and we don't have to pay to house them. And so that's a huge portion of the cost savings. And then the other, I guess, issue that, that I would wonder about is, well, the length of the programs. If somebody's not in jail or in prison long enough to participate in a program, are they getting that program cut short? And what happens then? Yeah, so these programs, the four different programs we looked at are varying length. And so that can help address some of that. So uh, for example, getting your GED, some people that may not take very long at all. For some, it could take longer. Obviously a college program, which was rare. We didn't study a lot of those because it's not done very often. That takes much longer. And so that was certainly an issue. So what I can tell you is that oftentimes working with other jails uh, and some of the other research that I've done, we will try to identify people who theoretically will be released at about the same time that the program ends. We find that to be very helpful. And so that does mean we might say to someone, uh, you have six months left and so we can't put you into this program because you will not be able to complete it. And so that is something that most jails and prisons, when they're working with inmates, are trying to find is estimate, okay, you have three years to go, which means you can probably finish this program in time. Let's go ahead and put you into this so that you complete it in about the same time that you get out. So that is something we try to do so we don't 
you know, leave someone hanging with half of the program. So were there any states that had better education opportunities than others in their prison? Yeah, so actually that's the next stage of the study we're working on right now. Uh, this was a study that was funded by the Mackinac Center for Public Policy in Michigan, actually, and they've come back and asked us to do some more. And we're doing a 50-state ranking uh, currently. Um, I can tell you that it does seem like states that had uh, policies in place to promote this and even school districts within their prison system seem to have better outcomes. So for example, Texas is one of those states that actually has a whole school district, just nothing but in their prison system. And we find so far, we haven't finished the study yet, better results in states that are a little more policy driven and a little more structured to provide these rather than just a hodgepodge of this location has it and that one doesn't and this one does. In places like Rutherford County, I know we have a lot of inmates who are awaiting you know, their transportation to a Tennessee Department of Corrections facility because they've been convicted and they may be here for two weeks or they may be here for six months. We don't know. But I would say that probably plays a role in that whole disruption in an education program. Is that true in other states? I'm sure it is in other states. That can certainly be a challenge where you have inmates that are moved around the state for different reasons. Uh, one of the things that's actually commonly done across the country and is also done in Tennessee, uh, the state can't usually house everybody that it needs to um, house. And so they're often pay local jails and local facilities to house state inmates. And so sometimes you do have folks who are in a local jail for several years because they're being housed on behalf of the state. And so that actually gives us more opportunities, not only to provide these programs at a state level, but even a local level with some inmates who will be held for a longer period of time or at least long enough to complete the program. Now, I, I know you said there's some systems that have more college-geared programs and I guess others that don't, obviously. Uh, but what are the most fascinating programs out there that probably help the most or maybe that you saw that helped the most? Yeah, so we actually found that college did seem to help the most. Uh, the challenge there is it's the most expensive. So some of these programs are very cheap to do, and some of them are more expensive to actually do. And again, that went into our calculation on return on investment. So we were actually surprised at how well college did. But one interesting thing that we noticed is over the last four or five years, the impact or is, uh, the likelihood to reduce recidivism um, and the impact that college had seemed to be declining. And we weren't really sure why that was, whether it's because more studies help us kind of realize the impact better or if there's some change in how college is, is being provided. But either way, recently this year, the federal government announced that uh, Pell Grants, which are pretty common for most college students to receive, uh, inmates are now eligible for those. They have not been eligible for many years. And so this will really change the dynamic. And so this this research is well positioned because what's going to happen is a lot of different colleges and universities are going to go back into the prison system because there's funding provided directly to the inmates to receive this. And so we're really going to start to find out whether college education uh, continues to move that needle, if you will, and actually push inmates uh, to better their lives and be able to find jobs when they get out. So we know so far that program has the greatest impact um, as far as when they are released, but it also is the most expensive. And so perhaps um, providing some federal grants will change that dynamic as well. I, I noticed you said that you did a lot of your research based on uh, research papers. How did you go about finding those research papers? Yeah, that was a long process and where the students actually came into play. So they spent hours last summer searching different databases. I think we looked at about a half dozen or so kind of housing centralized sources for finding research papers. I think we collected around 700 to start with and basically had a process where we 
through elimination. So some really weren't about prison education. Uh, some were, but didn't provide data that we could reanalyze, and that was one of the key metrics. So I believe we ended up with around 79 papers that we could actually use that had the data and a method that we needed to actually uh, include in this study and analyze it. Now, there were more studies than that that talked about prison education, but we were looking for the ones that, again, had the data accessible and really focused on our questions. When you do research like this, do you ever have uh, politicians, elected officials in different areas call you and say, you know, I, I want to use this before the General Assembly and, and you know, propose X, Y, Z. Do folks call you about the research? Actually, yes, sometimes. I haven't had anybody call on this topic yet. This just came out the last few months. Um, but I've done some research on package theft, for example, and had a uh, uh, U.S. senator call and ask for me to write a summary report of my findings that can be used. Uh, so, yeah, every once in a while you'll have somebody who reaches out and says, hey, I'd like to know more information. And that's really what I want to do. So uh, coming from a, a career in law enforcement where I dealt with these things on a firsthand basis, moving into education, I really wanted to make a difference. And if I can help um, educate or find out the answer to tough questions that can be put into practice through policy or some type of government legislation, that's really the end game is what I'm looking for is to really change someone's life and help people out. And prison systems across the country, uh, different private companies that have prisons, do they ever look into the research and try to you know, make changes based on it? Yeah, you're, you're spot on for where we're headed for the, for the next study. So I have to come back and tell you the, the findings of that. Not only have we looked into um, a 50-state ranking for how these things are going, we're actually looking into whether or not a public versus a private prison system makes a difference for the offering of these degrees. And we haven't quite finished that analysis yet. We're very close. Um, but that is a question we had, right? Do private prisons, as opposed to public, are they better at offering some of these programs? Um, and so we are analyzing that at the moment, but I don't have the data to release yet. It, it seems like we're hearing more and more about government contracts with private prison companies. And I don't know if that's something that we're seeing a growth in. I don't know that we're currently seeing a growth. Thankfully, the last few years, we've seen a slight decline in the prison population overall in this country, which is probably a very good sign. We got really high there for a while. And so we have seen a slight decline in that. As far as where those inmates are going, I don't entirely know. Um, there's a lot of discussion about you know private prisons versus public prisons. Um, and a lot of the discussion is around incentive, right? And so the feeling is, well, the private prisons are all out for the money. Um, but there's incentives at the state side as well. And so I really think the incentives to house people is more of a question for everyone than it is just a public versus private. And again with us this morning, Dr. Ben Stickle, professor of criminal justice at MTSU. And uh, just to summarize everything within this study, kind of give us a recap on what the numbers show as far as getting some type of education while incarcerated. Yeah, so we looked at the return on investment for uh, folks who are incarcerated who engage in different forms of uh, education. What we found is about $2 for every dollar spent is the return that we get. So that means lower, uh, less likely to recidivize and come back to prison, higher uh, wage and salary when someone uh, gets out. And we compared all that to the cost, not only of the program, but the money saved and we don't have to have someone in our prison system. Overall, we think it's a win. So policy and other government can look at this and say, hey, we actually should be investing in prison education because for every dollar we invest, we get $2 back in savings. And that's a really good opportunity. And again, those who receive some type of college uh, education while in prison, that the rate of them returning to jail or prison is even lower. 
Yes. Yeah. So college absolutely has uh, the most impact, not only for the dollar amount they make when they get out, but the likelihood of them um, returning. And that's, you know, a really great finding. So it reduces recidivism by almost 13% if you attend college while you're in prison. And, and as we close this morning, where can people read more about this study? Yeah, you can find this study um, online. We actually paid to have it open access, so it's free to view. You can find it under the title, Are Schools in Prison Worth It? And the Effects of Economic Returns on Prison Education. And that's been published in the American Journal of Criminal Justice. Sounds good. Well, thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you very much. Again, Dr. Ben Stickle, and you are the uh, professor of criminal justice. It's actually Criminal Justice Administration at MTSU. But again, thank you for joining us this morning. My pleasure. Time right now, 8.33. You're listening to WGNS. More news and information comes your way next. If you're looking for an authentic relationship with financial experts who genuinely care about your unique needs, Capstar Bank is for you. Capstar Bank is dedicated to the people of this community. Capstar Bank wants to help you reach your financial goals. Because at Capstar Bank, you matter to us. Capstar Bank, 2230 Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard. CapstarBank.com, member FDIC, equal housing lender. I can radio that's kind of possessed. It's coast to coast AM overnight every night. You have a possessed radio? Yeah. WGNS, Murfreesboro. Schedule online anytime. Getting an appointment with Ascension Care Teams at St. Thomas just got easier with online scheduling. Now you don't have to break away from your day to book the care you need when and where you need it. No matter where you are or what you're up to. Whether you're a new patient or if you've been here before, just pick the appointment that works for you. Schedule online anytime at GetSTHealthCare.com. All Sports Talk, weekdays at 5. Rutherford County's place to talk. As a leader in environmental services, sustainability is deeply integrated into our business model. At Middle Point Landfill, we are environmentalists at heart. We use cutting-edge technology in combination with our deep experience in recycling and waste services to protect our environment and our neighbors. That's our job, and that's our promise. We invite you to learn more about us at middlepointlandfill.com. For public services, we are sustainability in action. The Action Line on FM 101.9 and AM 1450 Murfreesboro, FM 100.5 Smyrna, and streaming at WGNSRadio.com. Right now that time, 8.35, you're listening to WGNS again on this Monday morning. And now in studio with us, Dr. Sam Zaza, Associate Professor of Information Systems and Analytics at MTSU. How are you this morning? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm good. So what are some of the topics we're going to cover uh, on this half of the show? So uh, I want to talk about the international conference we are bringing to MTSU this spring, May 29th to June 1st. And it is the ACM, Association for Computing Machinery, SIGMIS, CPR 2024 conference. ACM, the Association for Computing Machinery, is one of the oldest, uh, well-prestigious 
organizations that does um, that has multiple special interest group and the interest group I'm part of is the management information system and we're going to be hosting the conference at MTSU. So the students who would be involved in this conference, what are some of their, I guess, hopes and dreams of what they want to do in the future? Sure. So again, part of this is we're trying to promote at MTSU to have a culture of research, right? Research here is a mindset, is a skill. And I wanna encourage undergrad, grad, and PhD students to actually engage in such activity. Why? Because we are trying to provide an outlet for this kind of research. So in any discipline, any field, as long as they're talking about technology, right? I mean, what discipline doesn't have technology as part of it? So any type of research that they do in any discipline, they're more than welcome to submit their work. The whole idea is that their work will be peer reviewed. It means scholars uh, will read their paper, will provide feedback, and then our students, the faculty, and other people will be able to present their work and actually have also feedback while they are presenting from international scholars. We will have people coming from around the world to attend the conference. And of course, when it comes to technology, I, I mean, it changes every day, but research is one of those huge things that companies all over the world focus on, and it's always a different variety of research, of course, um, but it It's got to be an interesting field to be a part of. Definitely. Again, technology touch our life, touch society, touch the individual, touch the workplace. We study all of these aspects, whether technology that can empower individual or whether technology, the dark side of technology, where we warn society about these dark side or any new digital transformation or any new digital disruption like Gen AI, right? There are a lot of uncertainties around it and what are the potentials, how we can use it, uh, how it's gonna impact education, the organization, software development, all of these, we try to to study of any new technology that is going to impact our society. Again, with us this morning, Dr. Sam Zaza, Associate Professor of Information Systems at MTSU. So the research that these students will have a chance to have it peer-reviewed, have you gotten a chance to see anything that uh, may have been submitted at this point or that students will bring with them to this? So, so far, actually, I talked to not just our campus, but I talked to other universities in Tennessee because I'm trying to make involvement of universities in Tennessee and surrounding states to come and encourage their students also to be part of this. So, so far, like, even for my students or in other disciplines, like social work, I know like some people are gonna submit uh, work that is related of how technology can help social work in underdeveloped countries. Also, some people are gonna use how AI is helping neuromarketing. So in any different discipline, um, this is kind of the ideas that are bouncing around. And some of the students told me that they wanna do a case study about faculty perception of using ChatGPT in their classrooms. And what types of talks about AI have you been involved in? Because it seems like AI really grew, you know, almost overnight in the past year. 
It's true. Again, AI has been around for longer than last year when ChatGPT like shocked everybody and surprised everybody. But um, I just came back actually from a conference in India. It is the International Conference on Information System. And the theme and the majority of the research that has been discussed by international renowned scholars and researchers was about AI. What AI has, um, what standards, right? And who dictate the standards? What about the governance? What about the ethical? What about diversity, equity, and inclusion? What's the impact of AI, right? What's the impact of using AI or, for instance, ChatGPT on the environment? All of this, the social impact, social responsibility, the ethical um, DEI, all of that has been a major, major theme. And actually, like how we use AI for the benefit of the organization. You know, that I'm sure that's an interesting topic because when it comes to AI, it, it, it's not a real person. They're, they don't have feelings. And, you know, who sets the parameters of what's wrong, what's right, and what not to say and what to say and, uh, you know, what not to paint a picture of or to paint a picture of? Because, I mean, there's so many different forms of AI out there. Correct. And I think the, the main thing that we are really worried about as researchers is that AI is unknown. It's, it means the output, we don't know, right? I mean, you hear a lot, like especially now for ChatGPT, it depends on the prompts, right? And the output is gonna be different, but we cannot expect what the output is gonna be. So this uncertainty and how we're gonna use it, how we're gonna integrate it, we really passed the phase where, oh, are we gonna be using AI? we pass the stage is now the question is how fast we can embrace AI and how we can integrate it in what we are doing, whether we are in the classroom, whether we are in an organization or in the workplace. So really that huge shift and that uncertainty as researchers, we are tackling it. And I guess a big portion of what AI puts out depends on what the user puts in you know what information what picture whatever the case is but i guess a portion of it does depend on that it is and remember it is about the inputs right the data the, the training data that is being fed if the data is biased the output is going to be biased if the data has misinformation you will have a lot of misinformation so that is why the integrity and the output that we need to really check not just to rely on it because as we say garbage in garbage out so the training data that is being fed to ai is also of, of concern so probably there's going to be a, a lot of research on ai that is uh, peer reviewed there uh, so that would be one of the many topics that you'll hear about definitely. i'm sure that upcoming conference definitely definitely again i encourage everybody and one of the things that actually i want to mention also is even though this is an academic conference but actually industry partners and community engagement will be a huge huge part of it we will be inviting industry partners because we want to hear from industry we don't want it to be just a one-way communication so we will invite industry partner and actually we want them to bring their problems we want them to bring what problems that they are facing as organizations and what I would like to have is 
to have uh, a platform for industry and researchers to meet. So industry will talk about their problems and I hope that researchers will engage to provide a solution and to start some sort of collaboration to address that, which also will benefit our students, right? Because again, I want our students, whether they're gonna stay in academia or not, to be able to have this skill having or doing conducting a research is a skill why because you will be able to identify a problem and learn on your own about this problem then you will be able to identify the solution and you need to know how to present and communicate your findings to your ceo to your you know manager director so this is in my opinion a necessity skill in the changing nature of work that we are witnessing right now. And this conference, it'll start in May of next year. And where is the conference? So the conference is hosted and sponsored by the Jones College of Business, uh, the Department of Information System Analytics at MTSU. Okay, and uh, people can find more information about it online through the MTSU website, right? Uh, they can find actually through the ACM website. So if they Google ACM SIGMIS CPR 2024, uh, we have our own website where they can find all the information, the call for papers, and the submission uh, system. Now, is, is this the first year this uh, conference has been put together, or is this something that's been going on for several years? This conference has been for over 50 years but it is the first time that MTSU is hosting it. So it is really a big deal um, that we are hosting it because it is an international specialized conference by the ACM. And there is, uh, so the SIGMIS actually has a journal, the database for uh, advances in information system. This journal is a well uh, respected journal. Um, it is of high caliber. So hopefully, maybe some of the papers that are going to be submitted to the conference will be invited as a fast track to the journal. So it's a win-win situation. It would be really interesting to go back and read some of the past research submitted 50 years ago at, at this very same conference. So um, I'm, I'm, I can give you like a snippet about it. This started as computers um, about like people. So people as part or as a core of interacting with technology like the main focus was about how hr can deal with it professionals and that was 50 years ago yes right? okay again how we can encourage women right to be or to choose uh, to be an IT professional. And guess what? We are still having this issue. Over 50 years of research on how we can encourage women to be IT professionals or to choose IT as a major, we are still having it. Our major is 70% male, 30% female till today, even though we've been doing this kind of research for over 50 years. But recent studies, and actually this is a study I'm, I'm conducting, I'm looking at how inclusion play a major role in retaining those diversity or women or individuals in general. So now I'm calling for the talk to shift from a pure diversity to actually inclusion because you hire people, but if they're not really included, if their voices are not heard, they're not going to stay in the profession. And I guess there was a much bigger problem with voices being heard by a variety of people 
50 years ago compared to today? You see, like 50 years ago, nobody did this type of research about inclusion, right, or diversity. Most of it was about how we can encourage like women. But now in my in my recent research with my co-authors, we're looking at the general population. We're not looking at a one dimension of diversity. Again, diversity is not about race or gender or age. It's about perspective. It could be your perspective, your point of view. All of these are dimensions of diversity. So we're looking at how diversity, inclusion, and equity actually can help organizations to retain IT talent. And what I found so far is that inclusion play the most part where I advise organizations to pay a closer look at inclusion and how we can tailor some KPIs around that to measure any inclusion initiative that they did, whether it was a success or not. So also inclusion, AI, all of these topics are we're gonna have panels during the conference in May. And after the conference, and this is also an initiative that um, I'm calling for, which is I hope that we use this as a jumpstart for an annual conference hosted by MTSU that's going to be at the state level where we collaborate with all universities in Tennessee and surrounding areas, also industry partners, community partners, to have a peer-to-peer interaction uh, where universities can pull their resources to do something for students, faculty, programs, curriculum, you know, um, where everybody can meet everybody, like students can meet their peer students, talk about what they learn, the future, where employers can meet our students. And I hope by inviting students to our campus that we can attract a new generation of uh, future students. Sounds interesting. Again, our guest this morning, Dr. Sam Zaza, Associate Professor of Information Systems and Analytics at MTSU. And uh, we're already out of time, but thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me. Right now, that time is 8.50. Stay with us. We have more coming up. The Action Line on FM 101.9 and AM 1450 Murfreesboro, FM 100.5 Smyrna, and streaming at WGNSRadio.com. Come by Splashes during our creepy Halloween theme. There is an underground civilization underneath of the North American continent. It's coast to coast AM overnight every night on WGNS Murfreesboro. As a leader in environmental services, sustainability is deeply integrated into our business model. At Middle Point Landfill, we are environmentalists at heart. This is Mike Klassen with Middle Point Landfill. We use cutting edge technology in combination with our deep experience in recycling and waste services to protect our environment and our neighbors. That's our job and that's our promise. We invite you to learn more about us at middlepointlandfill.com. For public services, we are sustainability in action. If you want to get some barbecue, I'll tell you how to do it. Head for the Slick Pig and you're into it. Just walk through the door at 1920 East Main and your nose will send a message right to your brain. Say, mmm, smells good. And barbecue. Slick Pig. They got ribs and beans. Got spicy wings. Slick Pig. A Murfreesboro tradition. 1920 East Main. The Action Line on FM 101.9 and AM 1450 Murfreesboro, FM 100.5 Smyrna, and streaming at WGNSRadio.com. 
Right now that time, 8.51, and now during this last part of the program, we have Dr. Lewis Karikudas, director of the Albert Gore Research Center, and also Jason McGowan, oral historian with the Gore Center. And uh, Dr. Lewis, can I just call you Dr. K? Yes, that's great. And uh, tell us a little bit about what we'll be talking about during this half of the show. Sure. Well, let me introduce the Gore Center first. The Albert Gore Research Center is named for Senator Albert Gore Sr., who was a graduate of Middle Tennessee University. He was in the class of 1932, and he represented Tennessee in the House of Representatives in the 1930s and 40s and early 50s, and then in the 1950s and 60s was one of Tennessee's two senators. And so the Gore Center has his political papers and then many other archival collections that document the history of politics and policy and also the lives of everyday people here in Middle Tennessee. And one of our major initiatives is oral history projects. I'm well regarded as an oral historian in my professional circles and uh, we've had a number of large grants interviewing uh, that have allowed us to interview people about their experiences. Not everything that happens gets written down and put in an archive. And the stories that people tell and that they remember over the course of their life, often that's the most interesting part of history. And that's what Jason McGowan is specializing as our oral historian here at the Gore Center. And the Brown versus Board of Education oral history project is, is one that I guess you speak of and, and talk about and and i guess tell us more about it oh well, thank you very much um the oral history project uh well as you know we're coming up on the 70th anniversary of a uh, decision of brown versus board of education and this project looks to go beyond the uh one case of uh, brown versus the board of education and look at all five cases that were involved uh with this case that gave a historic decision uh what i'll be doing is going to these five areas and recording oral histories about growing up and education in a uh uh, pre-Brown uh, communities and society and education. Um, not only that, but this will also expand oral histories that show everyday life uh, in segregated areas, um, everyday life in uh, churches and communities as well. Uh, these will be archived with the National Park Service. And this is a project that's actually been been growing. I started out with a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities where I was able to, here in Middle Tennessee, record some oral histories uh, about growing up in Middle Tennessee during segregation. Uh, from there, I received another grant from the Western National Parks uh, Association where I was able to travel to Topeka, Kansas and do some more oral histories there on uh, the perils and, and fights of educational equality. That led to this grant from the National Park Service now, and it's on a national scale, so I couldn't be uh, happier with what I'm doing. So how do you go about deciding who to sit down and talk with, who, who to interview? Uh, well, that takes the help of the community, really. Um, in most places, I have to remember that I'm an outsider coming in, so there's an area of trust that has to be built first. So I speak with key community leaders, uh, associations, just to get the project out there so they can talk to me, I can talk to them, and we can gain this, this collaborative effort in order to get these. Now, who, who is interviewed? Uh, who, who's willing? 
I, I try not to turn anyone away uh, who is willing to be interviewed. And so to answer your question, yes, um, you know, we, we want, of course, quote unquote, predominant members, but also, you know, lay members, uh, municipal workers, uh, community workers, uh, you know, anybody who actually went to school during that time, because in order to really chronicleize how education is going, we not only have to look at those from segregation through the implementation of integration, but we also have to look at uh, people who went to school in the 80s, uh, the 70s, and the 90s as well. I mean, even today, you can see that even here in uh, Rutherford County, there's still angst over new drawn zoning lines for schools or what have you. And so, you know, all of this is part of that legacy. You know, Brown versus Board of Education, the biggest thing it did for me was it overturned Plessy versus Ferguson, which, you know, it gave us that separate but equal ideology. Uh, but Brown versus Board of Education, it, 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 it got rid of that. And I can't say paved the way because it was a rocky road, but it, it opened the door a little bit for uh, future civil rights uh, litigation and actions here. Are you asking a lot of the same questions when you go to these different areas or are you kind of letting that person who you're interviewing take over and just describe the things they remember, the things they saw or what happened to them? That's a really good question because I, I don't necessarily go in with a list of questions. I may have an outline, but this is that person's interview you know they're in the lead uh but just because they're in the lead doesn't mean i don't have the reins and i can't bring them back in a little bit you know if it gets off tour, uh, course but tangents are the beauty of oral history i want you to talk i want you to go out and and and, and just remember and reminisce uh, sometimes i bring pictures or ask them to bring pictures uh it might help them to rem might help to remind them of some certain memories uh, but to answer your question no i i don't have a list of questions a list of topics that i would like to get to but the gold and the nuggets are found in those tangents it's got to be interesting when you're talking to somebody and they're you know kind of getting carried away and you know i remember when i was a child and i did this and this was a part of my you know life not just school oh and that's what you find too because i find when you speak about education and you talk about school uh inevitably you're going to be talking about the community you're going to be talking about church you're going to be talking about family you're going to be talking about a, a plethora of other things that surround that because especially during those times because schools were uh, a hub, I guess you could say, of uh, of community. A lot of things went on in that school and with on in the churches. A lot of times you found the same. You, you see your teachers on Sunday sometimes. And so it's about education. Yes. But you'll find that it's going to reveal community uh, mores and community uh, aspects of, of, of growing up. So once this project is complete, are you going to, you know, have this to where people can listen to the different interviews locally? Will the interviews be online? Where can people find them? Oh, that's always. So Dr. All, Dr. Yeah. K has, <laughs> is that, is that going to be in, you know, at the Albert Gore Research Center? Yes, we will uh, make these available online so that people can listen and learn and enjoy the stories of, um, of history and of people's experience and uh, Jason is working carefully and closely with the National Park Service uh, to um, make sure that happens and I know we're already out of time but are there going to be photographs with this like the people you interview will you have their picture so 
people can see who you're talking to? Oh, yes, most definitely. Well, we'll love to have the pictures, a little uh, abstract about the interview itself, uh, and then the interview either by uh, video or even audio. But it's always the goal of public history. History is no good if you keep it to yourself. You, you have to put it out there. Uh, history doesn't change, but the way in which we interpret and way in which we present history must change. And if anybody would like to learn more, they can go online to the Albert Gore Research Center, and you can get to that through the MTSU website or just Google Albert Gore Research Center Murfreesboro, and it'll definitely pull up. And also, if you want to listen to any of my interviews, you can go to my website, theoralhistoryguy.com, and listen there. So the Oral History guy g-u-y g-u-y okay yeah. uh, dot com and and there you've already got some of those interviews already completed right uh i have some interviews from uh locally the ones i've done locally here um the ones i have done in topeka this past summer they are not available yet but they will soon be it'll be interesting to listen to those in not, not just you know tennessee but other areas for sure to kind of hear the differences Amen. Well, thank you both for joining us this morning. You're very welcome. And uh, we're already out of time. Time right now, 9.01. You're listening to WGNS. We do have more news and information coming your way next. And WGNS's Ron Jordan covers local news right now on WGNS, your good neighbor station since 1947. <laughs>